Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Lenore Zion, is an author and clinical psychologist in Los Angeles. She's also one of the original contributors to the online arts and culture magazine, The Nervous Breakdown, founded by Brad Listy. In 2011, she published her first book, a collection of irreverent personal essays entitled My Dead Pets Are Interesting. And she's here today on Between the Covers to talk about her debut novel, Stupid Children, published by Emergency Press. Welcome to Between the Covers, Lenore. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Well, let's start out with your protagonist, Jane. Can can you introduce us to the predicament she finds herself in pretty quickly in in the beginning of Stupid Children? Um, yeah, so she's she's cared for by a single father, and um, he has issues and attempts suicide, and as a result, is shipped off to an insane asylum, and she is shipped off to foster care, and because she's sent to foster care, you know. It's not really her choice who she ends up with, and she happens just by chance to end up with these people who are part of a cult called the Second Day Believers. Tell us a little bit about the Second Day Believers, too, because this is one of the the great imaginative aspects of Stupid Children is, is the mm-hmm. what makes this a Second Day Believers tick. Um, well, the Second Day Believers are largely just a group of people who are kind of led as a flock around by their leader, Sir One. They're told to believe in in the sanctity of of the internal organs of farm animals and uh worship this uh blast of truth that allegedly occurred on the second day which is really just to to say that it's the the cult's belief system is built on nothing it's really just one sociopath one very charismatic sociopath who has led a whole bunch of confused people into believing this very dangerous collection of of views that means nothing. So it wasn't based on a, on a cult that you had read about or, or heard about at some point? No, it was more based on the psychology of cult leaders than any cult that I've read about. And was there something compelling to you about having a protagonist tell this story who essentially grew up without a mother and then wasn't really so much parented by her father either um, mm-hmm. and then loses them both? and ends up in a very different scenario where she's parented in the most terrible way. Yes, it, it was definitely compelling to me, obviously. I, otherwise, I, I wouldn't have written it that way. But I, I think that the thing I find interesting is just what happens when everything is taken away from a person, and then you know you add insult to injury and put them in a situation where, they're t- where things that they didn't even know they had are taken from them as well. Um, I, I like to... I guess as a psychologist, I like to see uh, the effects on on people when they're put in circumstances that are just torturous beyond belief. It's really impressive, impressive to me how resilient some people are and how quickly some people give up. I really like that because there's a paradox in Jane, I think. And, and what I mean by that is, on the one hand, I feel like she's never been able to be a child. So mm-hmm. uh, her father is sort of presented in a way where he's almost more of a friend, and she sees herself as responsible for the grief that he's going through around mm-hmm. her her mother's death, which happened when she was too young to remember. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, the fact that she sort of is a has to parent her own parent gives her the skill set to. Uh, be able to survive with an adult voice in the cult that she finds herself in for for no reason. Right. I I see Jane's father certainly as less of a father and more of a friend. But but 
not really even a friend. He's more of just kind of a philosopher. Um, and he has his views, he has his beliefs, and he speaks about them and spouts them out whether anybody's listening or not. And she, being, you know, his daughter, I guess absorbed a lot of what he said and a lot of what he believed, and it really impacted her whether he was actually parenting her or not. So it's sort of passive parenting that he ended up doing with her. You chose to tell the story with Jane having gone through therapy mm-hmm. um, in a retrospective voice. So she's processed some of these these um, experiences mm-hmm. and has some commentary on it. D- did you choose that as a, as a means to enhance this sense of her as um, sort of prematurely an adult, even when she is a child? Because she feels, even in the child time, to mm-hmm. be someone who's taken on the responsibility of an adult. Right. Well, I I wanted her to be precocious, and I wanted her to, like her father, have developed a belief system about the social world around her. Um, I I kind of see her as incredibly detached from the rest of humanity in a lot of ways, and maybe that's because she was raised in uh, in an isolated way with her father where they were each other's only friends, you know? Um, And maybe it's just because of what happened to her, or maybe it's a combination of both. But I, I... I really think of her more as somebody who observes rather than experiences. So it's interesting how, as the book progresses, Jane becomes more uh, active and and responsible for figuring out what to do as her father sort of regresses and and, Mm -hmm. he becomes more infantilized in Mm -hmm. the sense that he's even sending her drawings rather than letters Mm -hmm. from Mm -hmm. the insane asylum. So we have this crossing where he's becoming more like a child and she's trying to grapple with her situation without mm-hmm. without responsible parenting. Well, the funny thing is it's sort of the same thing that really anybody goes through if they're lucky enough to have their parents, you know, survive into old age. Um, your Your parents will, no matter what, kind of deteriorate and become more childlike if they make it that long, and you will, as their child, become the adult in the situation and become the caretaker. And it just kind of happened at a very early age for Jane in a weird way. Given that you're a psychologist, do you do you have any particular um, thoughts about kids who are forced to parent their parents? Because even hmm. the, in the first page, Jane is um, saying, I wish I could have um, been there for my dad when he lost his mm-hmm. mom. Like her, her thoughts are very much that of a caretaker uh-huh. before he's even left as a father. And and, and I, I, I'm curious about what way that would color her uh-huh. narration of the story. Um, gosh, well, I'm not a parent myself, so I don't know if I have any, I don't know if I, if I have any relevant commentary on whether it's appropriate or inappropriate, what, what the best parenting style is, um, you know, but I do think that I, I guess that my my opinion, without being a parent on it, is that a parent should should be parenting their children and not the other way around. I think that a child who grows up and then can look back back in retrospect and say, "Gosh, I wish I would have been able to help my parents," is a child who's been parented well because they still love their parents and wish that they could have done something in retrospect to make their parents happier. Right. Um, So I actually think it's a testament to Jane's father that she's thinking that, that she has this love for him and 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 doesn't harbor, you know, this sort of resentment that so many people have for their parents. Well, tell us what the the title Stupid Children means to you. Um, I, I think that, you know, kids just by definition, they haven't lived 
long enough to know what's going on. They need the experience of the adults around them. And so they don't know. They don't know anything. And so they follow the adults. And there's a certain age at which kids, you know, during which kids break out of the adults know everything and I know nothing phase. And they start to realize that adults are also just people who are limited in terms of knowledge and and awareness. And this is a kid who believed that her father knew everything and was right about everything. And then she's sent off to be with different adults who believe they know everything and are right about everything. And all of a sudden she's faced with having to realize that nobody knows anything and everybody's wrong about everything and nobody knows that they're wrong. And it's just kind of a, I guess stupid children refers to all the people who don't realize that they don't know anything and they're so arrogant that they're not willing to admit it. And there's that funny scene in the book between several kids in the cult about whether a child can be stupid. And obviously mm-hmm. Jane thinks that <laughs> they can and, and others think that it's impossible for a child to be stupid. Mm-hmm. Do you think she sees um, being childlike as being weak and therefore stupid? I think she definitely thinks being childlike is, is, is the same thing as weakness. Um, and I don't know if she thinks that weakness is stupidity. Um, I don't think she does at that time. I think later she comes to believe that weakness is is synonymous with stupidity because look where it got her. Well, I don't know if she would call it weakness. To, I I guess that I guess that makes me wonder if weakness is the same thing as dependence um, in this question. I think she thinks it's a, a a beneficial characteristic to be able to be dependent upon another person. Um, because she was dependent on her father for a number of years, and it went very well during those years. Um, but I think she later comes to believe that weakness and dependence are, are synonymous, and that's what gets her into trouble. And that's what she starts to—that's when she starts to think that dependence is stupidity or weak or whatever you might want to call it. Yeah. I uh, absolutely love the cover of this book. And I do I, too. <laughs> did you have any say in choosing it? It's an interesting story, actually. When I was in college, I had a subscription to The New Yorker, and I was flipping through it in my dorm or wherever I was, and that the picture on the cover was in The New Yorker, um, I guess in a story about a, a gallery that was showing uh, Inger Krause's photography for some show coming up. And I, I, I was just immediately drawn in by this picture and I just loved it and I and I cut it out of the New Yorker and like taped it to this piece of white cardboard and put it on my wall and I I'd, I'd say I'm gonna I'm gonna get this photograph one day when I when I make a success of myself I'm gonna get this photograph. And I told this story to Brian to my publisher and he got a hold of the photographer of Inger Krause. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, by the way. But uh he got a hold of this photographer and got the rights for the the photograph for the cover of my book. It was a really nice gift. <laughs> and it feels like it resonates very much with sort of the uneasiness and innocence yeah. at the same time that is going on in, in, in Stupid Children. I and agree. I was looking up Ingar Krauss, and there was a description of his work that I felt like was a really interesting description. I thought of possibly of Jane, your protagonist, too. It, it said... His young subjects seem to have knowledge and wisdom beyond their years. Despite the mask-like appearance, each tries to project their eyes, faces, and postures reveal confusion, frustration, melancholy. They are serious, remote, sad, defiant. They've already seen too much, and the innocence lost is painfully etched into each of these images. It felt very much like... Yeah, that I've never heard that before. I, I think that it sounds a hell of a lot like Jane, yeah. 
<laughs> so in case you just tuned in, we're talking to Lenore Zion about her first novel, Stupid Children, published by Emergency Press. So um, in your day job, you're mm -hmm. a psychologist and uh -huh. you specialize in sexual pathologies. That's right. And I felt like there was a really interesting choice you made in Stupid Children that I'm curious about. And mm -hmm. one of the, it, it felt like sexual abuse loomed over the book, mm -hmm. though often it was never happening. For instance, I thought of the father, um, when, when Jane was still living with her father, he would wake her up in the middle of the night and there was this sense of foreboding for me as the reader that mm -hmm. he was going to go into the bedroom and, and molest her. And, and yet yeah. he's just waking her up for the most innocent of reasons to, to go and have a mid-night uh, uh, breakfast. Right. And then similarly, there's a, a cleansing ritual with her foster parents where she gets these balloons inflated in her nostrils that break her nose. And, mm -hmm. and But she's brought back into this black room and... Again, the first thing that leaps to my mind is that as a reader is they're going to do something horrible to her mm -hmm. um, sexually because this is happening to her during puberty as well. So mm -hmm. was that an intentional dynamic to, yes. <laughs> to have the foreboding but not the actual realization? Yes, it, it was intentional. I, the most important thing for me when I was writing this book was to be writing it with an authentic voice. So I I wanted it to sound the way that it sounds when – a person goes into a therapy session. You know, this is her account of her life. And there are things that she's going to dance around and not really say, you know, flat out, not not be direct about. And there are things that she's going to be direct about and kind of matter of fact and distanced and kind of cold about events in her life. Um, she's also constantly explaining things away and uh, using in the intellectualization defense and and not really emotionally connecting with the, the events that occurred in her own life. And that was the most important thing for me. So the the sense of foreboding, I think, is just kind of the unconscious. It's, it's Jane's unconscious coming through in her telling of her story. It's um, it's the fact that you can't you can't ignore the darkness that she's been through and she can't intellectualize it away. It's there whether she says it directly or not. So does that mean that she's not entirely a reliable narrator in the sense that maybe some abuse happened and she can't face it and therefore can't tell us? Yeah, I absolutely think that's true. Yeah. Interesting. She also says that in her own therapeutic process that she's diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. Mm -hmm. And I would love, since you are a psychologist, for you to tell <laughs> us what that means um, as we listen to her narration, like what, what does that mean for us as the reader that she's telling us a diagnosis that she may grasp or not? Right. That, that was sort of actually just an inside joke that I, that I threw in for my psychologist friends because narcissistic personality disorder kind of just describes everybody, uh, in the world. And so I, I don't think Jane is a narcissist, but when, when you're talking about legitimate narcissistic personality disorder, you're talking about somebody who very deep at their core has a, a, a profound fear of inadequacy and of people pointing out these inadequacies. So they defend by making themselves superior. I think that, I think that Jane doesn't feel superior. She feels confused when people aren't doing the things that she sees as obvious and making the choices that she believes to be the right choices. And she just doesn't understand when people make bad decisions. That's and it, and it drives her crazy. I don't think it's narcissistic, though. 
Well, definitely having the the foreboding of the potential sexual abuse, which now I'm learning could actually have been <laughs> real sexual abuse. There's also another way you, you created a sense of uncanniness over and above the the craziness of the cult itself. It was the use of animals. And mm-hmm. I, I'm interested in in whether that came out sort of happenstance as you wrote and or whether it was something planned. You have the mounted heads on the wall. You have the mm-hmm. hedgehog story. You have these porcelain geese. Mm-hmm. And all of that adds a sort of weirdness to the narrative that um, you still feel like you're in a recognizable world, but it, all, it, it has sort of a David Lynchian effect, I think, mm-hmm. in, in, in the writing. Oh, that's really flattering. <laughs> um, I'll take I'll take that. I like it. Um, yeah, I I I guess that that's just the kind of scenery that I find interesting. I wouldn't find it particularly interesting to read about um, Jane in a normal house that doesn't have you know heads all over the walls. And I I don't know. I I guess I guess judging by my first book, my dead pets are interesting. I I just like. I like for there to be a lot of dead animals around. What can I say? <laughs> I find them fascinating. <laughs> I, I listened to a, I listened to an early a podcast that you were in. I think it was a Nervous Breakdown podcast from uh-huh. several years ago. And you read a piece about um, how sexual pathology was pretty determined. The norms of sexual behavior uh-huh. was determined by um, pretty much by culture. So mm-hmm. it's it there's a lot of arbitrariness to the way that different sexual behaviors were, were defined. Do you think that's also true when it comes to religions? Here we have, um, her thrown into a cult. Uh Uh, the cult has all sorts of rituals which are not recognizable in any of the established religions Mm -hmm. is what makes this, this cult pathological versus just a, uh, uh, well, a, a weird religion. Well, I would say what's pathological about it is that it is it consists of adults who prey on children, and that's all that they do. They they gather children, whether it be by foster care or you know by birthing them into the system, and they abuse them. That's what they do, and they try to they try unsuccessfully really to um, it's it's really an unsuccessful cult. They try unsuccessfully to indoctrinate children, and it never works, which is why they keep having these suicides and the the kind of uh, attrition rate of of you know children in the cult is huge. So it it's about this kind of cult of loser adults who can't even get their cult off the ground. I guess um, I certainly don't know if it's comparable to to any religion. I, I don't think that I would say that it is. I'm not a particularly religious person myself, but um, I think most religions that, that you've heard of are a bit more successful than the Second Day Believers. And what do you what do you make of the fact that Jane is a secular Jew in this story mm-hmm. and she finds herself in a manger in a very bizarre ritual for the Second Day Believers as sort of the Jesus character? So what, what a dynamic were you exploring there? Um... Hmm. Well, you know, that's that scene is actually where I started with this whole book. Um, that's th- where I started writing. And I think that I, I mean, I didn't know what I was writing when I started writing that. And I just 
really liked the idea of a girl waking up and finding herself having been forcefully placed in a manger as the Jesus character and not let out. Um, I, I didn't really know what I was getting at when I was writing it, but as I continued to write the book and the story kind of formed around it, I, I thought, well, this is sort of perfect. You know, th th there's this unsuccessful cult that they don't really know how to get their cult off the ground. You know, people aren't really buying into it. And they kind of try to imprison people and force them to believe it. And the way that they do this is by, you know, kind of creating this surreal environment that makes nods to other religions. And, and not that I want to call, you know, Christianity a cult or anything. I don't. But, you know, it's it's one successful religion that they're making a nod to in order to try to, to kind of get their cult off the ground, I guess. They just can't do it. <laughs> they're, I mean, anybody who has to imprison somebody in order to get them to start seeing things their way is not very convincing, right? Yeah, and and how how do you find your your job as a psychologist informing your work? Uh, I, and there's the obvious ways. I mean, we start out right away with the dad with a grief counselor and mm -hmm. and the narrator talking about her therapy also. But mm -hmm. are there other ways in which you you find that this cross fertilization between psychoanalysis and psychotherapy and yeah and, and your writing? Yeah, I mean, I I I think that all of my characters. I chose backgrounds for them that would cause them to have the personalities and the behaviors that they have. You know, I I was very careful about that to make sure that these were people who had been led to where they were. And I, I think that my my background in psychology really helped with that. I, I read – a lot of times when I read books, I think this person wouldn't be like this. This character wouldn't have this reaction. This character wouldn't – believe the things that he or she believes. And, and I think that it's just kind of the writers not necessarily knowing <laughs> the way that human, the human mind works when it's uh, pushed up against something that the story is, is referencing. So, so what influences do you have from the, from the literary side? You, you mentioned that you, the books that you read that you don't mm -hmm. believe, are there certain ones that you've gone to for, uh, either style or structure cues or just overall vibe that you uh you know you pay homage to yeah not really that's i i think i might be unusual in that regard i i certainly have writers who i admire and think are really brilliant but i don't think that for a second I could write like they do. So I don't even try. I'm not, you know, I don't want to be influenced by them too much because it's, I mean, it's like if I started painting and said, I'm going to be like Picasso, you know, I don't, I don't particularly want to stand next to that and, and be judged. So I tried to come from a new place really when I was writing this and not be influenced by any other writers. But I guess in terms of theme and um, content, I'm I'm influenced mostly by by psych books. You know, uh, Psychopathia Sexualis is the most influential book in history for me. That's that's a really big deal for me. And um, who is that by? That, that's by it's it's not a it's not fiction. It's um it's a collection of case studies by Richard von Kraft Ebbing. It was written in 1886, and he it's he was a psychiatrist. He just collected a whole bunch of case studies on people with deviant sexuality. And of course, the deviant sexuality at the time was, was not necessarily what's considered deviant now, but a lot of it really is still, you know, there's a lot of necrophilia and things like this. And, you know, I read this when I was young, and it certainly has influenced me in a, in a number of ways. But 
in terms of pathology and in terms of what the human mind can do based on sexual aggression, that definitely influenced my book. Um, I would say probably my biggest influence for theme is is Catherine Dunn with Geek Love. You know, I I also read that when I was when I was fairly young, and I remember just being just. She knocked me off my feet. I, I mean, I, I'd never, I'd, I'd read a lot by that point, but I'd never read somebody who is so um, wonderfully repulsive in her writing. I, I just, <laughs> all of her characters are stomach turning and horrifying, and you love them and want to be with them and and hang out with them, and it's she's just a genius. She's she's really brilliant. And so I'd say content, she definitely paved the way for me to say, okay, I can write about the freakiest things imaginable. I don't care what it looks like because Catherine Dunn did it first, you know. And it sounds like you're interested in going into more of those themes in in future projects. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Whatever I'm writing right now. I'm not sure what I'm writing. I know it's a novel, but the thing I'm writing right now is really, really weird. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Um, I would, but, you know, I learned my lesson. I, I, I always change after I say something out loud it I end up having to delete that thing and the story takes a completely different turn and sure. you know it's it doesn't even end up being relevant so well, speaking of that you mentioned in an early podcast that you were writing a, a book called victimology is that yeah. stupid children yeah that's that a- stupid children that uh, victimology though again stupid children wasn't that book wasn't what I was writing in the beginning I wrote for two years writing this thing that I was calling victimology um and it was a completely different book. And, and for two years, I hated it and I hated it and I hated it. And I kept working on it compulsively. And eventually I just, you know, got to a breaking point and, and threw it all out. I just I deleted it except for about 20 pages, which were in that manger scene. And then I, I said, all right, I'm not going to put the pressure on myself to write a novel. I'm not going to think of it that way. And I went to work and whenever clients would cancel, I would take my laptop out and I'd just write something without thinking. And then all of a sudden I realized that I was writing my book. Um, and two months later, it was just done. It was it was done like that. And then I, you know, I cleaned it up and, and made a lot of edits and everything. But it was it, I didn't even think about it. It, it's a completely different. The, the first book was like this slapstick thing. It was very different. I don't oh, know what I was writing. Yeah. So do you have a working title for your new one that you can tell us and then we can know to throw out later? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you the the working title is, is Nice Parasites. Oh, I like that. Thanks. Thanks. It, it might change. Who knows? <laughs> Depending on the publisher and my feelings at the time. Well, we look forward to Nice Parasites. It was. Oh, it was. Nice having you on Between the Covers today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So we're talking today with Lenore Zion about her debut novel, Stupid Children. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host.